This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 238, Zombies. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I hate zombies. Don't bring up The Walking Dead with me. Don't tell me how the zombies in your show or movie are different. I don't care. This week we will discuss The Walking Dead among the Lord's Apostles, the global impact or lack thereof in one particular zombie apocalypse, the zombies you face every Monday at the water cooler, and how to choose between dying and living to fight another day against the hordes of evil. We'll start with what I've been preaching. When you think of Jesus' stories placed in context, Mark's account is probably the last one that comes to mind. But one particular story in Mark 8, starting verse 22, is best understood, I think, when you look at what happens earlier in the chapter. A blind man approaches Jesus in Bethsaida, asking to be healed. The same thing happens two chapters later. Bartimaeus approaches Jesus outside Jericho, asking for healing, and Jesus heals him, straight and to the point, like pretty much all of Jesus' miracles. But in Bethsaida, things go very differently. Mark 8, 23-25 reads, He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his eyes were restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is the only miracle Jesus ever performed in stages, as far as we know. Why? Why this place? Why this man? I think it's all about the men who looked like trees in the vision of this blurry-eyed man. Who were they? Not the villagers, it seems. Mark makes a point of mentioning how Jesus led the blind man out of town. The reasonable assumption is the tree men were Jesus' own disciples, those who kept company with him regularly. Hmm, that's interesting. Let's play with that a bit. Mark 8 begins with the feeding of the 4,000. Not the feeding of the 5,000, mind you. That happened earlier, back in chapter 6. The accounts are strikingly similar, though. A large number of people fed with a small amount of food and plenty left over. So what happens next? The Pharisees ask for another sign in verse 11, and Jesus refuses to give them one, knowing they would not make better use of the hundredth sign than they did of the 99 that went before. Then he gets in the boat with the disciples and tells them in verse 15, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And that causes a stir among the disciples, because they had realized they had not brought any bread with them on the trip. Yet again, the disciples are distracted from their spiritual mission, because they're worried about food. And this, as Jesus points out to them, right on the heels of Jesus miraculously feeding people under far more daunting circumstances. Food is not a problem for Jesus. As he puts it in verse 21, don't you understand yet? That's when they arrive at Bethsaida. That's when they see the blind man. That's when the soon-to-be former blind man sees the men who look like trees. And what a weird comparison to make, by the way. How would a human look like a tree? Especially a human who was able to walk. I find it impossible to escape the conclusion that Jesus has found a way knowing the heart of this man and the hearts of his disciples, to tell the disciples one more time how willingly ignorant they are. They keep company with Jesus every day, and yet somehow they are surprised whenever he is able to overcome a circumstance that they themselves would not be able to handle. 
No, the word zombie does not appear in the text, at least not in any version I've read. But the idea is definitely there. Walking, yes, but not understanding, not connecting. Part of the problem, not part of the solution. Perhaps we're not supposed to think the context is over, though. The next story Mark tells is about the party going to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter makes his famous confession of Jesus being the Christ. Maybe there's hope for the zombies after all, both then and now. Even if you resist the message over and over again, if you're a chronic underachiever, faith can worm its way into your heart and make something wonderful happen. Even then, though, the battle isn't over. The next story is about Peter trying to interfere with Jesus' plans for the cross and Jesus calling him Satan. I'd call that a setback. And you'll have them as well. The walking tree virus may manifest itself again and again. But if you trust in the Savior, if you do as he requires in verse 34, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You can see the kingdom come with power, just like he promised for the people of his day in Mark 9.1. He can use the gospel to turn a tree into a human being. It may happen in stages. In fact, I'll pretty much guarantee it'll happen in stages. But it will happen. Have faith in him and have patience with yourself. It will happen. This is what I've been reading. Have I mentioned yet how much I don't like zombies? Anyway, it shouldn't be surprising, all things considered, that I don't watch zombie movies taken from zombie books. So I was vaguely acquainted with World War Z the film, but I had no knowledge and less interest in the plot. Since films tend to have plots, I'm assuming they made one up for this one too, because World War Z the book has no plot. It's simply a catalog of reports regarding the aftermath of the plague that struck America and the world, including the ultimate victory of humanity over the undead and the massive human carnage that came first. I found it frustrating that the topic in my mind that was the only thing worth my attention, that is, what causes zombies and can it be avoided, was pretty much ignored. We just skipped ahead to the part where we feared for the future of humanity and then somehow, some way, managed to survive. My impression in my limited exposure to zombies tells me the lack of backstory is pretty much par for the course. Zombie authors typically skip all the technical mumbo-jumbo, which wouldn't have made any sense anyway, and get right to the hordes of undead trying to eat us all. And we're okay with that. Monster stories in general, and zombie stories in particular, are really much more about regular people than the monsters. Crisis situations bring out both the best and the worst in humanity. And that's what happens in World War Z. People who thought the communists were the scourge of the earth before the zombies came convinced themselves the communists were to blame. Military people wanted to bomb first and ask questions later. Politicians were setting themselves up for advancement if and when they managed to survive. Basically, people became the best and worst versions of the people they already were. You can make a case that people do that even without the zombies. Maybe there are some people who go through a radical transformation in troubled times. Maybe not as radical as from the living to the undead, but radical. You can see cowards becoming warriors and vice versa. But more often than not, I would say, people stay true to form. And that's good news if you want to look at it that way. It makes it a lot easier to practice. If you want to be selfless in a time of crisis, you can get some selflessness prep work in ahead of time. Jesus said of himself that he was the good shepherd and that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 15. 
The best example of that attitude, of course, was when he did that in the most literal of senses, going to the cross to atone for our sins. But really, Jesus laid down his life the moment he agreed to come to earth in the first place. The attitude of service that was part of his character throughout his life was ready and waiting for when the big moment came. Amos likely had no specific reason to think he'd make a good prophet when he was called to preach. He was just a shepherd and a tender of sycamore figs, not the prophet nor the son of a prophet. But God saw something in him that was special, just not yet realized. What exactly that looked like to human eyes, we can only speculate. Maybe it was an attitude of holiness when he was worshiping. Maybe it was an act of prayer life. Maybe it was nothing more specific than a consistent pattern of reverence before God and service to his neighbors. In any case, the big moment came, and when it did, he was more than up for the challenge. Maybe you're still waiting for your big moment. Maybe you're thinking it'll never come. And maybe it won't, at least like it did for Amos and Esther and countless others through the centuries. There's no way of telling ahead of time. All you can do is handle the small challenges you face every day. By building good habits, you build good character. And good character will pay off when the zombies show up and even if they don't. This is what I've been hearing. Until The Walking Dead became a thing, most of the references I heard to zombies had reference to a lack of sleep, and usually along with that, the need for coffee. I'm just a zombie this morning. Forgive the zombie chic look today, long night with the baby. Typical Monday, March of the Zombies, that sort of thing. When our bodies don't get enough sleep, our brain sends out a formal complaint. And everyone gets it. The eyes get fuzzy. The legs get sluggish. The mouth ceases to make intelligible sounds. You can treat symptoms all day with coffee, energy drinks, and or threats directed at anyone who invades your personal space. In the end, you'll only get headaches, poor work product, and jokes at your expense made behind your back. You need sleep. That's the only cure. Everything else is just a coping mechanism. The good news is, sleep will fix the problem. The bad news is, you already knew that, and it's likely not a viable option, or else you'd be working that plan already. Thanks for nothing, Captain Obvious. In reality, though, more sleep is absolutely an option, just one you've decided not to pursue. You have 24 hours in the day, just like everyone else. And if you want to designate eight of them for sleep, I will almost guarantee you that you can. The problem, as you already know, is that other obligations present drains on your time, many of which may seem non-negotiable. Your work schedule, for instance. The boss expects you awaken at your desk by 8 and to stay there working, or at least pretending to work, until 5. Or the fussy baby, there's no sleeping through that, trust me, I know. But in truth, everything is negotiable. You can take sick days or vacation days. You can enlist some help. Those might not be workable in your mind, but they are usually available. They're just compromises you are not willing to make in pursuit of sleep. I'm not judging. You do you. I'm saying you are not defined by your circumstances. You're defined by your choices. And let's be real here. Most of the zombies you run across are not victims in any real sense of the word. They engage in behavior that they know will bring out their inner zombie. You can't cram extra entertainment to hours that should be reserved for rest without paying the penalty. Jerry Seinfeld calls it the battle between night guy and morning guy. 
Night Guy writes a bunch of checks that Morning Guy has to cash the next day. Not a lot of fun for Morning Guy. The way I see it, you have three choices. You can live recklessly and accept the zombie hangover that follows as a price for doing business. You can live recklessly and whine about it, and probably lash out at people who choose the wrong zombie to breathe near. Or you can make better choices and not become a zombie in the first place. You can't have it all. You just can't. There is always a price to pay. I urge you to consider Solomon's advice in Ecclesiastes 11.9. Rejoice, young person, while you're young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Find a lifestyle you can defend to your Heavenly Father and judge. Filter all other choices through that choice. Say no from time to time, even to good things. You'll find Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 5.12 to be true as well. The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. I'm reminded of Elijah's whining in 1 Kings 19. He's just defeated Ahab, Jezebel, and the prophets of Baal, and his reward is being forced to run for his life. And he's more than willing to whine about it. He says in verse 4, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And then he falls asleep. Eventually, an angel wakes him up, gives him a meal, and tells him to sleep some more. God's sending him back to work, and God doesn't want him to be a zombie. That's a great lesson for us. Take care of yourself. Eat right. And get some sleep. You're going to need it. This is what I've been playing. I mentioned Dead of Winter in the very early days of the podcast. Episode 5, in fact. Dead of Winter is an example of the most dreaded genre in board gaming. The semi-cooperative game. All players at the table are playing the roles of people in a small town that's been hit hard by the zombie apocalypse. Resources are limited. The enemy is out in force. The objective is simply to survive, gather enough food, weapons, fuel, and other essentials to survive just a few days. It's absolutely essential that you communicate effectively and honestly with the others in your tribe. The thing is, though, you have your own personal objectives. The group wins, sort of, kind of, if someone makes it through to the end of the game. But you win individually if the group survives and your own personal objectives are met. And your objectives may not coincide with the will of the people. You may even seem to be working in direct opposition to the welfare of the group. It's strange to think of a game about zombies being a mirror to real life, but in this case it's absolutely true. Most people think of life as a semi-cooperative game. Obviously, it's in your best interest for society at large to prosper. But you're really more interested in taking care of yourself. And your neighbor is too. And because everyone is pursuing his own interest, the group suffers. And by extension, everyone in the group suffers, including you. I'd love to say the church is an exception to the rule, and it certainly should be. But oftentimes it's not. That's why James 3 verses 13 through 18 makes such a big deal about selfishness. If your most important objective in the church is personal, and if your brother and sister in Christ are just as selfish as you are, the fruit of righteousness cannot possibly produce the desired result. It's not a problem with the seed God gave us, 
As always, it's a problem with how we plant it. Surviving while walking among the living dead is a challenge, no doubt about it. And other than the help that comes from God, the best aid we'll ever find is the fellowship of like-minded souls. Faith in the gospel and in our brethren lets us sublimate our personal wants and wishes in pursuit of the greater good, even if our brethren don't seem to be following our lead. The most important mission is to protect the group. So protect the group and trust that the personal benefits will follow. I have a story to tell about the last time we played Dead of Winter, and it's probably worth 30 seconds of my time to set the tone a bit. Dead of Winter is, as you might expect, a dreary-looking board game by design. The artwork is a bit harsh. The little standees that represent zombies are creepy-looking, of course, but the regulars aren't much better. Except for the dog, of course. The dog is cute. And the whole vibe of digging through the frozen rubble to find a hatchet or a can of chili is pretty chilling, pardon the pun. Anyway, Tracy took her character into battle with the zombies, rolled the dice literally, and came up short. She was out of the game. Come to find out later, she did it on purpose. She was sick and tired of playing the game, and she wanted out. I didn't blame her then, and I'm not telling the story to blame her now. I'm reminding you of the stakes in the game you are playing. This is not a mere pastime that may or may not be to your liking, that could be easily shelved in favor of another better one. This is literally a battle of life and death, a battle in which you need me and I need you. If you personally don't see a whole lot of point in fighting the good fight anymore, you don't get to resign without it impacting everyone else. I don't know if this will motivate you to stick it out if you're on the verge of quitting or if it'll be effective for you in your efforts to rescue a brother or sister in Christ you may be worried about, but let's try it anyway. It's not all about you. It's about us. And even more, it's about him. Quitting may feel like a relief in the moment, but you're not here for the moment. You're here for heaven, and you're here with people who love you, who are depending on you. Hang on for one more day, and if you survive, hang on for one more. As Paul says in Romans 13, 11, your salvation is closer than when you first believed. The zombies will lose, and we will win. You have Jesus' word on it. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.